Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. You know, before I begin, I want to, before we begin talking about the next uh, piece of armor, um, if you have your Bibles, make sure you're open to Ephesians 6. I want to go back into the Old Testament. I want to go back to the book of Judges. And we're going to take a look at a man called Gideon. You know, Gideon, uh, Gideon had, had gathered his forces, had gathered a group of soldiers, and uh, he had 32,000. Now, to give you an idea, you know, it's kind of hard for us that we look at 32,000 and we don't really kind of grasp that number. That would be half of Lucal Oil Stadium down in Indianapolis. Half of that, Lucas Oil Stadium, that was one half of the stadium, would be about 32,000 for a football game. They can do more than that during concerts and basketball games, but for a football game, it'd be about half of the half the stadium full of people. So that's quite a few people that he has with him. 32,000 soldiers. and But even with that, they were going to go against the Midianites, and even with that, they are outnumbered. They are outnumbered four to one, which means for every Israelite there was, there was four Midianites. So, God says to him, Gideon, you have too many men. So he says, those who do not want to fight, let them go. He told Gideon, don't let them make them stay. Let them go home. So what happens is, he ends up with less men than he had to begin with, and now the odds go from 4 to 1 to 135 to 1. For every Israelite, there are 135 Midianites. The odds just got worse. But God's not done yet. They stopped to drink water. And as they're drinking water, some of the men are, are, are leaning down and they're picking water up in their hands and bringing it to their mouths. And other men are all the way, have their face all the way down in the water and they're drinking like a dog. So God says, those that are drinking like dogs go ahead and release them from service. So he tells him, those guys, you need to go. You can go. You don't need to stay. And Gideon is now left with 300 men. The odds have now changed to 450 to 1. For every Israelite, there are 450 Midianites. So what happens? God sends them to the Midianite camp. They surround the camp, but not with swords drawn. They surround the camp with torches and trumpets, and the torches have bottles on top of them, kind of like jars, clay jars on them, to make it so they can't see the light. And on the signal, the covers are removed, the trumpets are blown, blown, and the men yell, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. What happens is the Midianites are thrown into such confusion that they turn on each other and they kill each other. Not a single Israelite had to kill a single person. What's the point of this? What was God showing Gideon and showing us? He was showing them that God is the victory. That it is God's victory, not ours. It is his sword, 
that will deliver us, not ours. Now, throughout human history, there have been many, many individuals who have been famous, both fictional and real, whose identity was closely related to the weapons that they used. We all know the name of King Arthur's sword. What's the name of King Arthur's sword? Excalibur. Anybody know uh, what weapon Erwin Rommel was famous for in the deserts of North Africa? The tank. That was his weapon of choice. A tank. Let me ask you this. What was the name of King Arthur's helmet? What was the name of his boots? His shield? Hmm. No one knows. While all of the armor that is worn by a soldier or by a knight or by the king, while all of it is important, his horse, shield, all of it, it's the sword that I believe bears much importance. Because it is this, I mean, I'm sorry, the sword, I was thinking about last week, the sword that bears much importance. Because the sword is what is used to attack the enemy, to directly do the work that we are asked to do. So if we go to Ephesians 6, verse 17, and here's what Paul says, he says, And the sword of the Spirit, which is... The word of God. Now the Roman soldier would carry uh, what's called a gladius. That's why they, a lot of times the, the men who fought in the arena were called gladiators. This is a gladius. This is the only part of the armor that I was willing to buy because all the rest of it is way too expensive. That is a gladius. It's short. Okay. It is double-edged. This isn't sharp. So I can do that. It won't cut me. Thank goodness because I probably would cut myself. And it's heavy. It had a sharpened point. That sharpened point, with the correct amount of thrust, would go into the armor, would actually pierce armor. And if you swing it around, it's got some weight to it. And also the end of it is good for hitting somebody in the head. They would carry these. It was, it's based on a Spanish design. It was a very effective tool that was handled in the, in the hands of a, of a good trained soldier. It was very very effective. It was both an offensive and a defensive weapon. Yes, you can thrust with it and you can cut with it, but you could also block with it. Block here, block there, block there. It is very, very effective tool. It was short because it was good for close contact. This wasn't a long sword that you could swing, you know, three, four foot away from someone. This is somebody that you got close to where you could see them in the eye. I always think of the line, you don't, don't shoot until you can see the white of their eyes because you want to make sure that your shot is sure. And that's what this was for. Same idea. Up close. Personal. Deadly. Now, whether you're attacking or parrying, a soldier would need very extensive training on how to handle it. I have, believe me, I, I can swing this around and probably hurt myself very easily. There's no doubt. 
I'm not trained in how to use a sword. It's very dangerous if you don't know how to use it correctly. And in that same way, if we look at our scripture today, you know, we, with the, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And we need to be trained in how to use it. We need to be extensively trained in the Word of God, which is what Paul says the Word of God, the sword is, if we are to properly handle it. Now, one thing about the sword is what Paul says about it first is that this is not, this is not my sword. This is the sword of the Spirit. I want us to go and look at John 16, 8. Because this talks about what the, if this is the Holy Spirit's sword, is the Word of God, what does He do with it? How does He handle it? How, what is the purpose of what He is doing with it? And this is what it says in John 16, 8. Jesus is saying, and when He comes, which He is the, the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This world is a sinful place. And one of the responsibilities, one of the responsibilities of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of its sin. I want to be honest with you. No amount of preaching, pleading, pointing fingers will bring about the conviction of sin unless the Holy Spirit first works on a sinner's heart. If we do not allow the Holy Spirit to work on us, the Word of God is never going to do any good. It is the Spirit's job to convict. Not mine, not yours. Our job is to proclaim. And the most basic sin that the world is guilty of is unbelief. Unbelief in Jesus Christ. That is the one, one of the core sins that most people are guilty of. And the convicting power of the Holy Spirit is at work in the world because they believe not in Christ. Now, once a person responds to the Spirit's conviction and turns to faith in Jesus Christ, all the other sins he practices will be taken care of. God will convict them of all of their sins, but it begins with unbelief. He will change their life, and they will begin to the process of sanctification, which leads us to the point where we are no longer sinning and we're living the righteous life that we should be living. But it begins with that unbelief. It ha that has to go. We must turn to Christ. It is the sin of unbelief, the refusal to trust in Jesus, that is primary. So how does the Word of God do what it does? How does it do this? How does, how does the sword of the Spirit convict us? This is, this is what it says in Hebrews. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The beauty of a two-edged sword is it cuts this way and cuts this way, both ways. The Word of God cuts both ways. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts, it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God will determine your heart. When I am feeling convicted about something, where do I go? I go to the Word of God. 
Because that will tell me where my heart is. Now, there have been many things that have been written by men and that have stirred the emotions of men in amazing ways. I mean, think of your favorite poem and and what does that make you feel? Think about the Constitution, the, the, the Declaration of Independence, the Emancipation Proclamation, all these things written by men. And we can go the other way, too. Think about uh, Das Kapital by, by Karl Marx. It stirred a lot of people. What about Mein Kampf by Hitler? Words have the power to either build up or destroy. They have the power to inspire. But there is no book that has ever been written by man that has inspired and done more good in this world than the God's Word, than the Holy Bible. None. Nothing ever written has had the influence on its readers like the Word of God. God's Word is like this divine mirror that you place in front of yourself and it reflects the secrets of our guilty souls and shows the vileness of our own evil nature. The Scriptures will discern the thoughts and intents of our heart and reveal to men the fact that they are lost sinners and that they are in the presence of a holy God. That's what it does to us. And God's Word can destroy strongholds. And I want to be honest with you, I think we've got all have strongholds in our lives. Those things that we ref- that we constantly are fighting over that we f- refuse to tear down. It needs to be torn down. It may be pride. It may be, it may be addictions. It may be self-loathing. Maybe hate. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5, Paul tells us for the weapons of our warfare. I love that he says this here because he's, he's saying it's not just the sword, but I, the, the whole armor, everything we use in our battle are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And we can see the best example of this in Jesus' temptation. So Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the desert. Now, why has he done that? I mean, he's just, he's just been baptized. It's, it's a great thing going on. And, and you think, well, just, just get out there and get started. But he, he needs to go through this. He needs to experience temptation like we do. He's led into the desert. He spends 40 days fasting. And then Satan comes along. You know, it's hard to find a picture of this that I liked. Because I don't want I didn't want Satan with horns and a tail. But I wanted to see a picture of Jesus being confronted by this creature that he had created that had come to tempt him. So Satan comes to pick on him. But I think there's more to it than just that. Because of some of the things that Satan says to him, I think that Satan is trying to get information from Jesus. Because remember, Jesus Jesus is here. They know he's here. They know who he is. When the demons say, Son of God, what are you going to do with us? They have no idea why he's here. Satan does not know why he's here. Because Paul tells us if they did know, then the powers of this current current um, age would not have crucified him. They did not know why he was here. So he's trying to get information from him. And we can see, if you want to look at that, look at, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 2.8. He says, if they had known, they wouldn't have crucified him. 
So Satan begins to talk to Jesus by hitting him first with where Satan thinks Jesus is the weakest. And you know, that's what Satan does. He knows us. He doesn't read our mind if he's tempting us. And believe me, I, don't, I also don't believe that Satan is busy all day hitting every single one of us that are believers trying to tempt us. I think we do a pretty darn good job of putting ourselves into temptation and sinning. But I think there are times when he has a special goal in mind that he could easily confront us and test us and tempt us and send his, his people, the beings he has working for him, to do it. But we can't blame everything on him. But he knows, what is, he knows what's been going on with Jesus. He knows that Jesus has been fasting, so he's going to hit him where he thinks he is the weakest, and that's with the lust of the flesh. And in Matthew 4.3, this is what happens. It says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Simple task. I mean, this is Jesus. He created everything. It would not be difficult for Jesus to make stones become loaves of bread. But how does Jesus respond? Jesus takes the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and he quotes, he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. And this is what he says. He says, man, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He's saying we do need to eat. He's not saying we're not supposed to eat. But he is saying that we also live on God's word. So we need to be in God's word. I don't know how many of you have ever fasted. You know, I've done a 48-hour fast where I don't eat for two days. It's difficult. It's hard. And then you get to this point, it's pretty easy. And it gets hard again. And i got to wonder, what happens, what happens to us when we fast from God's Word for 48 hours? Do we feel the same way? We should. Because it's not just food we need. We need the Word of the Lord. Of course, obviously Satan fails in this first temptation. So then he tries his next step. And what is he going to do? He's going to tempt Jesus with the pride of life. In verse 6 he says, And he said to him, again, Satan is saying to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He had taken him to the top of the temple. It says, For it is written. So he quotes Jesus' scripture. You don't think Satan knows the Bible? He knows the Bible better than we do. He doesn't understand it. He can't interpret it very well, but he knows the words. It says, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. But again, Jesus pulls out the sword of the Spirit, and he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. It is written, you shall not put the Lord to the test. Don't test God. Satan doesn't give up that easy. He pulls out his final scheme of trying to get Jesus to, to be tempted and to fall for the temptation, and that is with the lust of the eyes. In verse 8, it says again, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kings of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. See, in this temptation, Satan's trying to get Jesus to take the easy route. All these things belong to Satan. They were given to him when Adam sinned. 
God allowed, <laughs> allowed Satan to have, he's the ruler of the air now. He is the ruler of the earth, at least until the cross. And he's offering it to Jesus. Because Satan knows that all things will be gathered under Christ. He knows this. He doesn't know how it's going to happen or when. So he thinks, maybe if I just bypass that, I can get it to this, and I'll just give him this stuff, and he'll worship me instead of God the Father. He's offering Jesus the opportunity to bypass the cross and death, though he doesn't understand that that was the very reason that Jesus came. And Jesus parries the Satan's attack again with the sword of the Spirit by going to Deuteronomy 6.13, saying, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus sees past what Satan is saying. He knows that this is just Satan trying to get him to worship him. Satan leaves. He leaves Jesus alone, at least for now. But a couple of things I want to share with you about this encounter and its importance and what we're talking about today. You know, each time that Satan attacks Jesus, he's attacking Jesus' identity. Twice we see Satan saying, if you are the Son of God. And the third time, he's, he's attacking Jesus' sonship because God had promised to give Jesus everything. So he's attacking his identity. That's exactly what Satan does with us. He attacks our identity. In our new identity in Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin, but we are reconciled to God. That's Romans 5.10, Romans 5.6, where we're no longer slaves to sins. Our new identity completely changes our relationship with God. It completely changes our relationship with families and everybody. It's supposed to. Just as it changes the way we see the world. And our new identity in Christ means we have the same relationship with God that Christ has. We're not Jesus. That's not what I'm saying, because there are people in the world today who will say, well, you, be you can become Jesus. No, you cannot become God. You cannot become. But we have that same kind of relationship. He's our father. We're his sons and daughters. We are his children. God has adopted us. We're able to call him Abba Father, Romans 8, 15 through 16. We are both, we're both joint heirs, Galatians 3, 29. And we're friends, John 15, 15 of Christ. And this relationship is even stronger than those we have with our earthly families. That's why Jesus says you must hate your mother and father if you're going to follow me in Matthew 10. See, so instead of fearing God as a judge, we have this great privilege of coming to him boldly as our father. We can approach him with confidence and ask of him what we need. Hebrews 4.16 and we can ask for his guidance and his wisdom, James 1.5, and know that nothing will take us from him, Romans 8.38 and 39. But we also rest in his authority and respond to him, trusting him obediently, knowing that obedience is the key part of remaining close to him. You know, we, we face the same temptations that Jesus faced. Lust of the flesh, pride of life, lust of the eyes. And there are many temptations that we fall into because our flesh nature, we are weak. We are so weak, but we, we have God who will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear with him, not by ourselves, because by himself, by ourselves, we're going to fall. 
I can do nothing apart from Christ, is what Jesus said, apart from God, but we can do nothing apart from Christ. That's why I, I, when we're talking about the armor, I talk about the fact that it's not my righteousness that I'm wearing, it's His. I put it on me. I stand in it. Not mine. It's all a free gift that He gives us. But we must stand it. We must use it. The tools He gives us, the sword does me no good if I don't train in it. I've said that about all the pieces of armor. If I don't, if I don't train in it, I don't, I'm not able to use it to defend myself and to reach out and defend those who need to know about Christ. Jesus' experience in the desert helps us see these common temptations that keep us from serving God effectively. And we learn from his responses exactly how we are supposed to respond, and that is with Scripture. But if we're going to succeed, we need to know how to handle it. Paul reminded Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But if we never pull the sword out of the scabbard, if I never do this, what good is this? If I never open this, what good is it? And if I never go before Matthew and look at that old stuff, you know, that when you open your Bible, it's all dusty, you know, because you've never been in the Old Testament, what good is it? As I said last week, and Sherry reminded me again that, you know, there's Andy Stanley has said that we need to somehow detach ourselves from the Old Testament. No, I'm sorry. Paul doesn't. Talk about that next week a little bit. We must train with it. And to get proficient at using it, we must train every day. My kids want to learn instruments. They want to learn guitar and, and drums. They have to play every day. They really do. You want to be good at it? You've got to play every day. See, the purpose of the sword of the Spirit, the Bible, is actually to make us strong, to be able to withstand the evil onslaught of our enemy and defeat our own sin nature. See, it, it's, not just about, it's not just about going out there and slaying the devil. With God's word. We're not going to search him out and we're not going to search out demons and try to cast them out with the word of God. No, we're, we're, this is close up contact. This is using the word of God to defend your heart. But you got to know it. And also to help rend your own heart, to fight against your own sin nature. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's about putting God's word into us so that we don't sin. Psalm 119.99-105 says, I have more understanding than all my teachers. This isn't boasting. Because there's a reason why. This is for your testimonies are my meditation. 
I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. Through your precepts I gain, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We all quote that. You know, your word is a light to my feet and a light to my path. A lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We don't read the beginning of it. It's his precepts. It's, this gives, it's what we do. We put it in our heart. Remember last week we are talking about salvation and how it's not one and done event. Well, it's this ongoing process that we call sanctification. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, he asked God to sanctify. This is what he says, sanctify them in what? In the truth. And he says, your word is truth. So how do we grow in Christ? How do we how do we, we we live life of righteousness? How do we become more like Christ every day? By reading his word, by getting into his word in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, by discussing it with other people. Spiritual conversations. Iron sharpen iron. And the Holy Spirit will use the power of a world, the Word to save our souls, and then the Word, the sword of the Spirit, to give us spiritual strength to become mature soldiers for the Lord in fighting in this corrupt world that we're living in. The more we know and we understand God's Word, the more useful we will be in doing God's will. That's why it says take up the whole armor of God. We must be effective in standing against the enemy of our very souls. We're like these like Roman soldiers who wield this, this short-handled stabbing sword where we can stab and we can block. When we trust the word, it guarantees our salvation. The word guarantees our salvation. The original Greek word here for word is not logos. Logos is the most common word we think about for the word word. You know, in the beginning, in the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All those instances are the word logos. But here in Ephesians, what Paul uses is this word chrema, R-H-E-M-A, which means message which emphasizes that we are, as believers of Christ, are protected not just by understanding God's word and the gospel intellectually, which is very important, but by applying the word to our lives and proclaiming the message to others. That's what the Greek word means. It's not just about protecting me, it's about proclaiming it to others. Because we want more people in our army... If we do this, we'll be able to respond to our temptations, our doubts, and our divisions that Satan's going to launch at us. And Paul shows us the result of being able to understand and wield the sword of the Spirit in Colossians 3.16. This is what he says. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we need to stand firm, 
putting on the full armor of God, resisting the lies of Satan with our gospel convictions about the person, the life, death, resurrection, and the reign of Jesus Christ. And you can bet that the spiritual forces of darkness in this evil age will continually try to stop us. And you can bet that our own fleshly nature, which is where sin originates, where it comes from, we are tempted, and then it, it, it speaks to our flesh, and it speaks to our fleshly sin nature, that that is continually going to fight against us. Paul says that. He says, I'm, I'm the worst of all. I still am tempted. But praise be to God that I have a way out of it. But we must train in the Word of God. We must train in all of the pieces of armor. Or we will be derailed in our walk. But see, the schemes of the evil one, our own flesh desire, is going to fail to stop us from demonstrating the wisdom of God and gathering us all under the rule of Christ. That is the overarching thing we're looking at. From the beginning, that has been God's plan, to bring it all under the rule of Christ. We are now in the age of grace, we're in the age of the church, and God has given us the weapons we need to persevere. If we just put them on and stand firm in them, if we wish to be victorious, we must also keep trusting in Christ and in his word. See, Paul has shown us that our strength comes from God. He has analyzed the threat of the enemy to launch his lies to create doubt and division. Paul has clarified the plan for us to stand firm. And he's explained the tools that we have, which is the armor of God. He's explained to us that we have the belt of truth, which is attached with rings to the breastplate of righteousness, that we have the helmet of salvation to protect our minds, we have the sword of the Spirit. We have the, the shoes of the gospel of peace. And now we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We have a plan. God has a plan. You and I are to be more and more sanctified every day as we train in this armor. As we stand firm in this armor. We have the tools. See, the question is, am I going to? Am I going to stand firm in the armor? Or am I going to allow myself, you know, I don't know if I want to wear armor all day. It's pretty heavy stuff. This is, I mean, this is serious things we got to think about. I, I, do, I, do I want to put on the righteousness of Christ. That's a big responsibility. Do I want to train in the Word of God? That means I'm going to have to put some other things aside to spend time in His Word. Am I going to, am I going to be ready to move? It's, it's being prepared because the preparation of the gospel of peace. Am I, am I prepared for the, where the gospel is going to take me? There's another item. There's two, actually, two more items we need to discuss. One, the next one we need to discuss is not even in Ephesians. But when we look back at Isaiah, we, we see that this, that this is, this is obvious where, obviously where Paul gets this idea. 
So next week we're going to talk about this cloak that's in Isaiah. And what was the cloak? Because this cloak is very important because I think that the cloak that Isaiah talks about drives us in our walk with Christ, drives us in our training, drives us in our learning from Christ and having the, the, having the armor of God on us and training us on how to use it. And it pushes us forward as we walk in Christ. It drives us in our standing firm in his armor. That's next week. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sword of the spirit that you've given us. Not to be handled lightly. Not to be sat on a shelf and, and never opened up and never, never trained in, never, never using, never, under, never searching. And Lord, even questioning at times. If we have a sword, we're going to question, what is this part? Why is it? What Could this be better? Is this what it is? What does it do? How does it work? Can I handle it this way? How do I need to do this? We need to, need to look at the word and we need to question, how, is, how are we to use this? What is this saying? What is God's purpose in this? And then we need to read it and we need to share it. We need to discuss it. We need to train with others. No soldier trains alone. You train with others. Help us to do that, Father. But not for our glory. This is not about our glory. As we saw from the story of Gideon, it's you, Lord, who got the glory. Not us. It's for your glory and your praise. As you draw all things under Christ, we long for that day. And until that day, we're going to fight this battle. But we don't fight it with fleshly tools. We fight it with spiritual tools. And we fight against a spiritual enemy. Enemies, actually, as we talked about who want to destroy us or want to take us with them in their punishment and will do everything they can to hurt you. And they use us as pawns to do that. And then we fight against our own fleshly desires, Father. As I said last week, I think, or the week before, we are our own enemy, our own worst enemy. Help us, Lord, to put aside, to kill the sin flesh that's in us. Just to kill it. So it cannot reign in our lives. And Lord, we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you for joining Living Faith on our YouTube channel. My prayer is that this message today has encouraged you and strengthened your faith in Jesus Christ. We would love to connect with you, so please subscribe to our channel and hit the bell so that you get updated 
when we add a new message. Also, please leave any comments you might have in the comments section. We would love you to join us live for our service on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. We hope you have a great day today. God bless.